everybody who pursues an academic career has this incredible safety net, right? Your students can leave the school and find good jobs relatively quickly. Like, take advantage of that. Make it your plan B and instead make entrepreneurship your plan A because you have disproportionate outcomes. People will give you a lot of credit for having taken big risks. If it works out, you'll never worry about money again. If it works out, you'll have incredible levels of impact. And if it doesn't work out, I'm sure everybody will give you credit. And so the question then is how to get started. Well, the most important thing is to just get started. Just do something, figure out what's valuable, put something in front of people. If you're not embarrassed, you waited too long. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and our next guest, Nicholas Henrichson, co-founded a company called Carlipso after graduating from Stanford Business School in 2013. After going through Y Combinator in 2014, he and his business partner were able to raise a total of $10 million in venture funding and in 2017 sold to Carvana, currently the third largest used car retailer in the US. In this episode, Nicholas talks about his newest venture with Clutch, how he and his business partner were able to successfully build and exit Carlipso, and tips for attracting the right investors. I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, Nicholas, thank you for joining me today on InFactor. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to hear your story. You have a really interesting background. You were born in Germany, studied in Germany, Chile, Australia, and the US, I think, if I got Correct. all those right. So yep. tell us how you got started down the path to entrepreneurship. Were you one of those kids that was selling stuff in the first grade? And, uh, oh, wait. You know. <laughs> the one with the lemonade stand, you mean? <laughs> You're right, the that lemonade stand. <laughs> My first job, I think was some sort of, yeah, in a store like Best Buy or so in Germany, where I sold computer parts. And then I actually started web developing a little bit and built websites for like friends of the family and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But in the early days of my career, I was aiming to be a professional golf player. I used to play golf on the German national team. And so I did that for four or five years. In Germany, you don't do college sport. Instead, you do it in like private clubs. Mm -hmm. And I was a member of, I became a member of a very good club. It was a very good team. But then towards like the end of that experience, I realized I really, really wouldn't want to go on tour. It's a very tough life. But instead, I want to go to college. And so I ended up going to college, studied computer science and finance, looked into like the usual type of businesses. My peers all went into consulting or banking. But then I decided to like, not go the traditional route, but something slightly more adventurous and joined a company that invested in renewable energy startups or projects in India and China. And so that was my first, first startup experience. I was in employee number three or four or so at this company. That's a different experience, isn't it? Working Very for different. a startup, a lot of hard work, but a lot of opportunity usually to get involved in everything. From yeah, the you wear a lot of different hats and you see the whole journey. That company went nowhere, but it was a good experience. And then in 2011, I decided to move to the U.S. to go to business school at Stanford. Okay. And so you went to Stanford. And is that where you met Chris Coleman? Correct. Yeah. Chris is a huge, huge car enthusiast. Like to put things into perspective, his first car was a DeLorean, the one from Back to the Future. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And then the other day he calls me and said, hey, it got registered. I'm like, what? My kit car, the one I've been welding in my garage for the last four years. 
it's um, he's obsessed <laughs> with cars. His dream was building to his for, own car. That's yeah, awesome. Scratch. His dream was to work for a Formula One company, and so he did mechanical engineering in MIT, and then went to consulting. I met him at business school, and towards the end of the business school experience, a lot of our classmates asked us for advice: How do I sell a used car? And then Chris gave advice, but the typical business school student doesn't end there. Then the next question is, okay, great. Can you sell my car for me? Uh-huh. And so we jokingly said, if, if you pay us for it, we'll do it. And people said, sure, I'll pay you for it. And that's how we ended up selling our classmates' cars. That's great. So you started all of this while you were students selling yep. your classmates' cars. Kind of the accidental entrepreneurs, right? I think every entrepreneur is accidental. Like you stumble <laughs> into it. There's nobody, like with hindsight, all these companies look like, oh, this was an overnight success and this person was brilliant, had all these great ideas. That's not how big companies are built. Yeah. You know, that's a great message. As you know, I teach entrepreneurship. But interestingly, we just started back amid all of this uncertainty of COVID and all of that. But I have a student from Germany, by the way, but I've you also do? got a student... One of my students is a golf pro, but I can't remember if it was the young man from Germany or the young man. We have a young man from London, but when they listen to this, they'll know I'm talking about them. But, you know, a lot of students that I have are kind of like, oh, I haven't found my passion. I don't know what I'm going to do, but your message is just kind of go do something and yeah. maybe it'll find you. It's interesting because I actually gave a speech at Stanford about exactly that topic mm-hmm. where... I really wanted to start a company and I was desperately and obsessively looking for something that I enjoyed and it doesn't work like that. I think there's two types of entrepreneurs. The one who's just very authentic to a space, who loves the space, is obsessed with, like in Chris's case, my co-founder's case, cars. Uh Number one. Number two is the other entrepreneur who's just a really strong generalist, doesn't take no as an answer, is a hustler. And that person just needs to fall in love with a, like a problem to be solved. And so I'm the latter one. Chris is the one who understood cars really well. He's like, no, no, I think selling cars is a huge problem. I'm like, okay, let's solve it. But Chris was much more authentic to the space. And I was more of the, like, I just get things done very quickly. <laughs> you know, I really like that message. Like you, I'm more the latter. And I can remember thinking and even talking to my parents about the fact that I didn't really I didn't feel like I had any skills, you know, <laughs> because I Welcome didn't to have, that club. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't have, you know, like one of my friends who was an excellent pianist, you know, already at a young age and, and others that knew exactly what they wanted to do in life. And I just never quite knew, but my mom was an entrepreneur. So I was influenced by that, which can, can make a big difference. So tell us, Carlipso, basically retailer of used cars. Is that exactly. how you would describe it? So we got into the market by selling our classmates cars. And we thought we'll create some sort of marketplace or selling service. Mm-hmm. Because the experience of selling a car over Craigslist is really bad. At the time, that was the main channel to sell your used car to another private party. And we realized that most of our time we ended up spending with people who wanted to test drive cars and who either never showed up or showed up hours late. And mm-hmm. then we said, well, that's an easy problem to solve. We just create a Zipcar-like experience where we let people test drive cars by themselves. They're insured anyway. And if somebody wants to keep a car, we'll just do it electronically. And so overnight, we were able to do 100 test drives in parallel versus sequentially with us being present. 
And so that felt really good. And we shared that with professors and lecturers, including one person who I respect a lot and who is a mentor of ours, Andy Rackloff. He started Benchmark Capital and runs Wealthfront. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you should be selling cars. And if you want to make this a company, here's $50,000 to get started. Nice. <laughs> so that's how we stumbled into it. So for you, being a part of an academic community was a real big help in the launch of your business. Yeah, so it's interesting because I would always tell people, you don't learn what you need to succeed in a startup if you go to school. But especially Stanford Business School did two things for me. Number one, it created this incredible safety in it. So mm-hmm. I could take really, really, really big risks. And if it didn't work out, I knew I wouldn't fall deep. I would just have a really good job, which that's a good outcome. Number one. Number two, you're just surrounded by really inspiring people who want to help because they received help when they were early in their careers and then they wanted to give back. And without me realizing, I stumbled into that community and they were so encouraging. And if there's one thing I'd love to do now is give back and do the same thing for friends and entrepreneurs I meet. Like the first check-in is the one who takes the biggest risk and creates all the momentum. And it's not even the amount of money. It's just that somebody commits. Mm-hmm. And so it helped us a lot. And that's what I'm doing to a lot of other founders who I met. That's very cool. And, you know, that community is, I tell our students, especially our graduate students, because they come in as part of a cohort. Yep. And I tell them that's probably one of the most important things that they're going to take away yep. is the network of people. Like people always say, we go to business school because you build a network. I actually see it slightly differently. Like the outcome is the same, but business school does a really good job in picking people who are somewhat similar to you. Mm-hmm. Like people are relatively similar, same interests, same ambitions. Mm-hmm. And then they come from different places, all really interesting backgrounds. And you end up becoming friends with all your classmates. And then you have these incredible friends who do incredible things. And before you know, you want to raise money. And turns out one of your friends works at the fund. Or you want to make a partnership with another company. One of your friends works there. Or if you, in our case, want to sell your company. Well, it turns out one of my classmates worked at the company in partnerships who I wanted to sell the company to. And so, yeah, it's a network, but it's primarily friends helping each other because they're friends. Right. We work with people that we like and trust at the exactly. end of the day. So let's go back to Carlipso. Where did you come up with the name, by the way? That's a cool name. <laughs> you like it? Yeah. Who knows how to spell it? We're not strong at, at giving our companies names. We wanted car to be in the name, and then we just looked through all sorts of combinations where we could have car and something where we didn't have to pay tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And Calypso is like this Greek saga, and we thought we'll make it a joke and add car Lipsa. <laughs> I think if I had to start another company, I wouldn't name it that way, but that's how we stumbled into it. Yeah, you never know how you're going to come up. You know, there's no. lots of different guidelines about a name, but at the end of the day, sometimes it's which URL you can actually get for exactly, an affordable yeah. price. Yeah, and there's not a few left out there. Yeah, it's like yeah. Airbnb was Airbed and Breakfast. And then they're like, well, let's at least call it Airbnb. That's a little shorter. And now it's a brand, and people don't even realize that BNB stands for Bed and Breakfast. Right, right. So talk a little bit about competition. You were out in California, a student, and you got this business started. What was competition like at that time? Were there a lot of other businesses trying to do what you were doing? Yeah, you'll find this interesting. This is fascinating, and Stanford Business School still talks about it. So Chris and I started selling our classmates' cars, company number one. There was another 
when we were selling, people ran into us like, I would like to sell my car through you, but I only want to sell, uh, we charge like 5% or so. Mm -hmm. Like, I only want to pay 3% because that's what the other company is charging. Like, what other company? (laughs) So there's another GSB, Stanford Business School, it's called Graduate School of Business, GSB Uh founder from the class above us who's also starting a car company. We're like, oh, that's interesting. And then before we knew, there's another one, another classmate of ours joined another company and so all of a sudden there were three car companies completely different approaches started at the same class and then it didn't stop there we were selling cars and stanford engineering students bought a car from us and really enjoyed the experience of buying this car with this like self-guided test drive gave us a ton of kind of really positive feedback and before we knew three months later, we catch him copying our whole business. <laughs> there were like four <laughs> companies and everybody was like stealing from each other. In reality, the company that raised most money blew up in two years. They, they lost $150 million in two years, disappeared. The company that copied us ended up in an expensive lawsuit with Craigslist. Craigslist sued them for $33 million. <laughs> Shift Cars is the third or fourth company. They went sideways for a long, long, long time. We're basically dead in March. And then thanks to COVID, demand for cars like skyrocketed. And then Carvana was public and stock price was just going up. Room, another car company started around the same time, went public. And so Shiftcar found like a backdoor to go public. They're going public now from debt to public in three months. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. It's a crazy story, the whole story. You know, well, first of all, that story is a great story. And there's several things I like about it. Interestingly, we find the same thing. The students will come in and they'll say, you know, I'm working on this project that nobody else has ever thought of. <laughs> and it's the exact same company that, that other students have been working on. Yeah. Or, you, you know, either they didn't bring it to fruition or they're already out there and the student didn't know about it. So that's a great story. You know, there's something about timing. I tell my students that the word opportunity comes from the Latin phrase ob portu, which is the time it refers back to when the captain and the crew were at the port waiting for the tide to rise. They were, they were looking toward port. And so opportunity really comes from this idea that there is a timing element. So a lot of times, you know, the timing was right for what you were going to do. And I really like that story. But the other really aspect of that story that I really like is the fact that the student who was stealing your ideas ended up in an ethical issue somewhere else. So (laughs) that tells you something, right? (laughs) That's karma. It is. It's karma. And the first example, I'm forgetting what you said now. Well, the first one was when classmates wanted us to sell their car, but at the same rate that the other person was charging. (laughs) Right. But they went out of business as well, right? Because they had too much money. That's the, that was the point I wanted to make. They had too much money and that can be a problem because with too much money, you don't know what to spend it on early in in a startup. So yeah, the the lessons I learned are very consistent with what you said. um, Some lessons, competition just doesn't matter on day one. Everybody has like an idea. The most important thing is to learn really quickly because if you had an idea that worked Somebody else would have done that already. And so what you need to do is force yourself into exploring what customers tell you. You need to discover what people really want. You put something in front of them, they'll say no. And then if you keep bugging them and asking them, so what would you pay for? They'll tell you something else that they really want. And so the only way to learn is through talking to customers, putting yourself out there. Right. The, right. the initial idea is just like 
pole in the ground where you start and then you need to go from there. That's why it's important. And then the other lesson is money. We were the ones who raised by far the least money. And I think with hindsight, we were the ones who had by far the most successful financial outcome for the founders. And the problem, in the, especially in the Valley, is like raising money is, has all of a sudden become a metric of, of success. And you feel really silly if you raise less than somebody else. But it's actually the other way around. You don't want a lot of money in your cap table because that only means you either get diluted or you need to make that money for the investors first before you get anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, again, back to the idea that if you've got too much money, you don't know what to spend it on and you lose a lot of your creativity, especially too much money too soon. Exactly. (laughs) It's this funny thing where no matter how much you raise, you usually always spend it in 18 months. (laughs) <laughs> you could, if you raise 1 million, you'll survive for 18 months. If you raise 10 million, somehow after 18 months, you're like, where's all this money gone? Right, and right. So you really need to force yourself to be very, very frugal. And it's very tempting not to. So let's talk a little bit more about resources because that's the, you know, that's the thing that most entrepreneurs believe is holding them back. I would argue that that's not the case, but most entrepreneurs are really interested in raising money. How did you and Chris raise money? What was the strategy there and how did that work for you? There's obviously two types of resources. There's money and then there's people. And so everybody says, oh, if I had both, then I would build such a big company in Silicon Valley and among MBAs, it's usually or if I just had this founding engineer, or if I just had access to software engineers, I'd build a really big company. And both of that is obviously not true. Let's start how we did it. We hacked things together ourselves. Like we have a little bit of a technical background. None of the code we would write would like be able to withstand any amount of traffic, but it would like one user it would support. <laughs> and that's enough because you don't have a lot of users in day one. So we built most of it ourselves. Mm -hmm. Now the last seven years, seven years ago is when we started the first company. Over the last seven years, these no-code website builders and tools have made so much progress that you can get a very, very long way with very little technical knowledge. Mm -hmm. At least you can for sure build some sort of proof of concept and get some traction. Which in our case, what we didn't know is like we had a lot of traction for an early start stage company because we were turning cars we sold 50 cars on average, more than $10,000. So we moved more than half a million dollars in two months. And so that for a usual tech company, these amounts are very big, very quickly. And for us, it made sense because it's just what cars are. But what professors and lecturers saw in us were two people who hustle, who solve their problems, who don't mind using band-aids. They're not embarrassed putting things out there. And they really want that. They really want to have an impact. And so that's why when our first professor said, hey, I'd love for you guys to build a business. And if you do so, I'd love to invest $50,000. That kicked off some sort of snowball effect where other professors knew. And then we asked for advice, but got money and ended up raising $1.2 million straight out of business school. I really like that. You know, I got some good advice one time myself. And it was, if you want advice, ask for money. If you yeah. want money, ask for advice. Yeah, it's 100% true, yeah. Yeah, so basically what you said was you went to them asking for input and advice, and they saw promise there, they saw coachability, they saw two or more people by that time willing to work really hard, so they were willing to invest in you. So that's yeah. pretty cool. You all were very lucky. Yeah, so did you have experience with any incubators or accelerators? Yeah, so what happened next is we ran the company 
and experimented, experimented. And so we were running a lot. We were selling a decent number of cars on a weekly basis, but we weren't growing. Like we, we couldn't produce this hockey stick growth. And so at the time, friends of ours, Tony, who started DoorDash and is running DoorDash as we speak, mm-hmm. he went through Y Combinator and said it was a really good experience. They push you really hard to grow and keep you accountable. And then you have your peers and there's peer pressure. And so we said, that sounds really good. And so we were tempted to apply it. And then we found out that the guy who stole our idea was applying. And he was so convinced that he would get in. They posted all over the internet that he's like, has his YC interview. And we're like, yeah, not going to (laughs) happen. We want to go anyway. So let's apply. And then we apply it. And then YC, Y Combinator reached out to us and said, hey, I know interviews only start next week, but any chance you can interview this week because there's another company in the same space. For some reason, they have a deadline. And then we arrived at YC, and that's basically the first time we saw this guy ever since we sold him a car. They interviewed first. These interviews are just 10 minutes, super quick. Then we went second. And then the interviews usually go with, like, it's rapid-fire questions. Mm -hmm. And in our case, the partners asked a few questions where seemed a little bored because they just heard that story before. And then they said, let me think, and then you do this and this and this and this. And we're like, no, no, no. That's what we thought before we started the business. But now that we've talked to a lot of customers, customers don't like that. They don't like that. This works. This actually works very differently. And you could see their eyes open because we had all these insights from working with customers. And then they called us 10 minutes later. It's like a complete no-brainer. You know this business so much better. You clearly have been out there hustling with customers. And so that's how we got into Y Combinator. Makes all the difference to listen to customers, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. I tell my students, it's basically like the scientific methodology. You know, you're just making assumptions all exactly, along yeah. the way. And until you're out there talking to people that, you know, would actually pay some money, you don't really know. Yeah, money is the only validation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that business, I would think, might have some regulatory hurdles, or did you have anything along the way, or were there any other barriers to entry that maybe... Yeah, that's an interesting story, because we did peer-to-peer, so I would help you sell your car to somebody else, and that space isn't regulated, but the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicle in California, at least, would love to regulate that, because Mm -hmm. they're all, all around consumer protection. And so they were, instead of saying, no, you can't do that, they were asking, like they sent us cease and desist letters and we pushed back and they were asking, okay, how do you do this? How do you make sure there's tires and brakes? How do you make sure people have driver's licenses? And so we could sense that all they were looking for is like a little loophole where they can poke their fingers in and then tell us, well, you need, that's why we have regulation. That's why you need to follow regulation. We ended up pivoting the business where we wouldn't do peer-to-peer anymore. Instead, we worked with institutional sellers, leasing companies Mm. and rental companies. Mm -hmm. These companies have thousands of cars that they need to dispose of on a regular basis. Usually, they sell these cars to dealerships through what's called the wholesale auction. And in order to participate in that market, we needed a dealer license. And so we just needed to follow the regulation, which is not complicated. And then it's not obnoxiously strict or anything. It's just like, here's three things you need to do. And they make sense and everybody can follow them. But funny enough, one of our competitors the one that was dead in March and is going public now, they were like massively against regulation. And so instead of just getting their dealer license, which is a thing of two or three weeks, they kept fighting the government or the state of California and had lobbyists and paid people. And 
for the longest time, they try to fight regulation. And then at some point, we kept telling them, just get the stupid dealer license. It's not hard and it doesn't limit you in any way. At some point, they gave in and realized, oh, this is much easier if I just follow the rules. And so, yeah, used car sales are not very heavily regulated, nothing that's obnoxious. And so we just complied very early on, had a few pushbacks where we disagreed with the letter of the law and conveyed that we're following the spirit of the law and they were really flexible. Like the fact that we were so cooperative helped us get the green light for a few things that we wanted to do. For example, Mm -hmm. we were selling used cars online, but used cars need to be by law uh, parked in a showroom, but we don't have a showroom. Mm -hmm. And so the showroom... The real reason for the showroom is because you need to have the license hanging at the wall and then the sales purple licenses and you just need to demonstrate that everything is licensed. And so the way we got around it or we agreed to still be able to pursue it is if we just very publicly share and send to our potential buyers the dealer license, the copy and all these documents so they have it at their disposal if they wanted to do more research. So yeah, usually regulation, unless it's, Uber is a tricky case, but um, like in our case, it didn't impact us. Right. And so you basically, the way you approached it is you, at times, even though you were not going to be able to comply the way that businesses had complied in the past, you found creative ways to meet the spirit and the letter of what they exactly. needed. And yeah. that worked. Yeah. And so you could say two things. The California DMV is the strictest in the country. So whatever we managed to get through in California worked at Right. Else. Right. But at the same time, California is very tech savvy. And, and so it's just an ecosystem and an environment where people encourage other people to do new things. The DMV said, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, used cars will be sold online one day. And like, we'd rather support you than be in your way. And so right. Um, right. They, were not, they were not a big obstacle. Like they wanted to talk and understand, but they weren't risking our business at all. Right. Well, it's really interesting. You mentioned earlier competitor that is now going public and the effects of the pandemic and California. I agree. You know, California has a sort of tech in its DNA now, but it's interesting. You know, I read somewhere that as educators, we have advanced six years in the past six months because of what we've needed to do. So you mentioned that the car industry, are people selling their cars more because they're they're working remotely? Is that what's happening? No, it's it's very counterintuitive, but it makes sense. So here's what happened over the last six months. And similar to what you said, the last six months compressed what would have taken 10 years. So when COVID started, people were scared. Like, they're like, okay, I'm not going to spend my money now. I'm also, I can't. So car sales dropped off a cliff. When car sales drop off a cliff, you have two problems. A, you have a lot of business not making any business. But you also, cars are a lot of physical, like they're very physical. They're big, heavy items Mm -hmm. and occupy a lot of space. So if all of a sudden there's no sales, retail sales, you have this whiplash effect that the whole value chain gets clocked. Because cars need to move. So much so that the OEMs stop producing cars and send like furloughed all their employees for two or three months. And then the dealers were said, like, we're not selling any cars, we're all gonna die. So the OEM said, Okay, we'll help you with creative financing options. And then you saw incredible leases and low financing rates. And then all of a sudden everything turned around. People said, Okay, life goes on, I have my stimulus money now well, I'm not going to use public transport. 
So while I wanted to use my car less, now I'm going to use it more. So people all of a sudden started buying cars like crazy and demand skyrocketed. <laughs> so not only where it was, but more. But then the whole value chain was still somewhat clocked. So it unclocked itself really quickly. And now there's a lack of cars because the manufacturers stopped building them for two months. Yeah. Yeah. And so the price is skyrocketed. If you have a used car, now is a great time to sell it. Prices are higher than ever. And so it'll come down. But that's the problem with operational businesses. You know, economic recessions and challenges like we faced are so different. I'm on a public company board, Marine Max, and it's a very large retailer of boats. And, okay. you know, during the last recession, smaller boat sales struggled and, and bigger boats, you know, continued to do okay. Our stock is higher than it's been in a long time. We had the same kind of situation and we're running out of boats, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're selling, you know, we've got more big boats, but like 69% of the people that are buying boats now have never had boats, you know, especially this summer. They bought boats oh, wow. because they think about it, boating is something you can do and be socially distanced. It's outside. It's, you know, so boat sales That's have been crazy. through the roof. Yeah. And so who would expect it? And kind of an interesting thing, but I think, you know, the fall might show the same kind of thing that you're talking about, kind of challenges with inventory. But for us, having less inventory on site has also been a good thing. No, you you didn't have to worry about inventory, yeah. Yeah. right? The <laughs> way you were selling. But now you have selling. to worry about not having it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of interesting. Well, Carlipso had a happy ending, I think. Four years after you started it, I think you sold it. So yeah, so yeah to funny. Carvana, right? Yeah, with hindsight, everything looks happy. Unfortunately, we pushed to make it happy. What happened was we raised $10 million in venture funding. The model where we didn't work with private sellers, but with institutions, that took off very nicely. And so we quickly went from 20, 30, 40 to 150 cars we were selling a month. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that's $3.5 million revenue every month with a very, very small team. And for an independent dealership, that's actually pretty decent volume. Mm -hmm. We run into two problems after that. Problem number one, and with hindsight, I'm rationalizing, I'm understanding what happened at the time. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. We tapped out of the market of, let's call them early adopters, people who were totally fine buying online because mm -hmm. Uber drivers, they had a car lease, knew exactly what they wanted. And we started moving into some more like a mass market where people, the consumers were much more emotional around the purchase. And so they're like, I'm not going to buy cars sight unseen. I saved two years for this. What if it doesn't work? And we had guarantees in place, but the mass wasn't ready for it yet. And so the first 150 sales were easy. And then 151st was much harder than the previous one. Problem number one. Problem number two is we also tapped out of the market of people who can pay with cash, who have very good interest, a very good credit score. We're moving into the market of people with worse credit scores and uh, worse mean less than 700. Mm -hmm. The majority of people have less than 700 credit score. Mm -hmm. Yet banks wouldn't work with us because we were so new in the space. And Carvana had solutions to both of these problems. A, actually they're somewhat intermingled. Being able to lend to people who have challenged credit also means that people are less sensitive around the condition of the car. They're so happy about the loan that they're, they're much less sensitive around the condition of the car. And so it becomes self-fulfilling. And Carvana is completely vertically integrated. They're a car company, their website, like a tech company, their reconditioning company, their logistics company, and they're a lender themselves too. And the combination of this vertical integration allows them 
to provide these incredible customer experience to people who don't usually have a great customer experience. And mm -hmm. that's why it's been taking off so much, so much quicker than our business did at the time. And so what we said, well, clearly Carvana is crushing it. Let's talk to them and understand why. And while talking to them, we realized, oh, it's these advantages that help them. We'll never, that these are structural advantages that we can never catch up with. But instead, Carvana said, you built some software that we were about to build and have yet to succeed. So why don't we combine the efforts and all of you come on board? And that's how we ended up selling the company, coming on board, and then switching lanes and continuing in the faster rocket ship, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So you really didn't start out with this idea. We're going to start this company and sell it to... Nope. Carvana or some other company. Yeah. So Yeah, well Carvana started almost at the same time. This yeah, that was cool to say. You, to you were, yes, you were so new in the industry. It wasn't like there were a lot of others out there to sell to, right? No, yeah. Even Carvana said, wouldn't it be cool to sell this company for a billion dollar one day? Well now it's worth forty billion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't um, yeah, that's kind of the way it is. So Carvana is now what, in the top two or three in the in terms of valuation, it's more yeah. three times as valuable as Carvax. Yeah. Wow. It's, wow. it's got a third of the size, I think, in terms of volume, if I had to guess. Mm -hmm. But it's worth three times as much. Carmax is upset. We just talked to Carmax and a team from Carmax the other day. It's like, this is unfair. We're returning one and a half billion dollars in value to shareholders every year. We're highly profitable. And Carvana is losing hand over fist but it's growing so fast that they're getting so much credit from the market. I'm thankful and grateful that I'm a shareholder in Carvana, not in CarMax. Right. <laughs> so tell me now, what are Nicholas and Chris doing? Are you all still working together or have you gone your separate ways? And no, so at Carvana, we had different roles. Chris was managing product front end. So the website, Carvana.com, the search pages, the vehicle detail pages, all of these pages were somewhat powered through the data that we had built in our previous company in Soto Carvana. I started and ran the Soto Carvana business, the business of consumers selling their cars to Carvana. Then after three years with the company, we felt like we were lucky to have been part of it, but we want to do something ourselves again. So we left in June to start another company, a digital platform to refinance auto loans. Oh, okay. And so the insight for that business was, was twofold based on our previous experience, as you can imagine. When we were selling cars, we noticed that Although consumers negotiate very hard on the price of the car, once they fell in love, all of a sudden they ask the dealership, okay, can you give me a loan? But the dealership doesn't have the same incentives as you do. And so instead of giving you the best rate, they'll give you the loan that pays the dealer the highest referral fee. That's insight number one. Insight number two, if you don't have perfect credit and make your payments for six, nine, 12, or 18 months, you migrate in credit, you improve it a lot. Mm -hmm. you're still stuck in the loan that you got when you had bad credit. Mm -hmm. And then we noticed that people just don't refinance car loans as often as they refinance their mortgage. And interest rates have, are historically low. Yeah, so, so now you're, I think the name of this company is With Clutch. Clutch. Where did and that the website name? is With Clutch. With Clutch. Where did that <laughs> name come from? <laughs> Another great creative idea. We needed a domain again. I like I like clutch because clutch has all these meanings. Clutch is the clutch in your cars if you drive manual. Right, you know right. It. Clutch is your wallet as a lady. A player can be clutch, so it's something positive and cool. And so we wanted to have a player on the world where 
Yeah, and this is how we stumbled into it. And yeah. speaking, people like it. I like it. Although I got to tell you, when I first saw it, I thought it was car parts. So, okay, good. <laughs> the clutch. Yeah, that was my first. That was my first idea. Now, you're actually. You mentioned earlier that you're working with some startups, and you love helping yep. entrepreneurs. Tell us a little bit about that, also. Yeah. So. Through having gone now the second time, the experience of raising money and trying to figure out what to build, I so, so, so much empathize with other founders. And I really love what people are doing. And if I hear their stories, I always wish I was running their company, not mine. (laughs) And so I found the best way for me to help and get involved is to write small angel texts to friends and friends of friends Uh or people who I meet and really like. It's not a lot of money, but it, it helps founders get momentum. It, it just raises your level of confidence, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so there's usually two types of investments I make. Either companies in the U.S. where I know that somebody who understands the space invests, and I like the founders a lot. Or, and this is not by design, but I'm not surprised it happened. Or businesses in Latin America, because I love Latin America. And companies and founders that I know and I'm friends with who start companies that have worked somewhere else. And so this could be usually companies that worked in the U.S. and have yet to go to Brazil. Those are the types of business I usually invest in. And then I'm on WhatsApp, WhatsApp with them all the time because I happen to be in Silicon Valley. And if they need an introduction to somebody, the community is really tight. And so there's a good chance I know them. Yeah, that's really so cool. And I'm so thrilled that you're on this podcast because our students, and actually a lot of students are now listening to these podcasts in their classes. they're sitting at home. <laughs> they're sitting at home. That's exactly right. I wanted to ask you, as we get a little bit closer to the end of our conversation, unfortunately, I wanted to ask you about failure because failure and resilience are topics that come up a lot in our classes when we're and among entrepreneurs. And, you know, most of us who have been through any kind of success understand that Failure is typically a part of that pathway. Did yeah. you have to suffer any failures along the way? <laughs> and I, Endless. of course, you did. Huh? And would you be willing to maybe share a story or talk about sure. how you think about failure? Sure. So first, we were lucky that when we went to Stanford, we were the first class to study in the new classrooms and the new business school, which was donated by Phil Knight, the founder mm-hmm. of Nike. Yeah. And he has the saying, I think it's written in very big letters at business school, there's nothing wrong with failing for as long as you don't fail the last time you try. Right. And I think there is so much truth to that because you fail all the time. Like I failed three times this morning already (laughs) because I thought, oh, I got this. And I'm like, oh, no, people don't like that. This is just the nature of the beast. You need to enjoy being wrong all the time until you find something that works and you turn out to be right. Our business, our last business, if you're really honest, didn't work. Like it wasn't a success. We tried to become the biggest car retailer in the country and we had the money, we had the team, we had the ambition, but structurally we just couldn't get there. And we could have or could have tried to raise more money, but we didn't feel like there was an opportunity. So we literally ran all the way. We tried everything. And then we said, we need to find a home for this company because otherwise all the work is going to waste. The money of the investors is going to be gone. And selling the company at the time felt like a failure to be honest like that's not what we intended to do it turned out really successful for us and we're lucky i think it's just the nature of not having given up we're just continuing to try over and over and over again and then now we are here again back again we're getting so much credit for not having given up the last time it's just the nature of the beast 
Right. Yeah. Investors and supporters, people who understand entrepreneurship are much more willing to invest in somebody that's been through that. Right. I mean, that yeah, experience. I, I, that's what people say. And I was lucky to experience that. Yeah. Lately, so that's nice. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the other thing is I'm listening to you talk about failure is that, you know, you can define failure as not as not reaching the outcome that you want at the end of the day. But, but the reality is it's all about con- keeping going, right? Yeah, it's always it's about, at the end of the day, but yeah. tomorrow is another day. So. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> so failure's not the end. I like that. So this has been really fun, Nicholas. I have learned a lot and had such a good time talking to you and getting to know you a little bit better. I always like to ask one last question, my guess. If you had one piece of advice you could leave with our listeners, knowing it's mostly students and early stage entrepreneurs, although some more experienced, what would it be? It's two pieces of advice that I think very heavily linked. Everybody who pursues an academic career has this incredible safety net, right? Your students can leave the school and find good jobs relatively quickly. Like take advantage of that. Make it your plan B and instead make entrepreneurship your plan A because you have disproportionate outcomes. People will give you a lot of credit for having taken big risks. If it works out, you'll never worry about money again. If it works out, you'll have incredible levels of impact. And if it doesn't work out, I'm sure everybody will give you credit. And so the question then is how to get started. Well, the most important thing is to just get started. Just do something, figure out what's valuable, put something in front of people. If you're not embarrassed, you waited too long. Just get started. And then you'll start learning. And then you're in this treadmill or this wheel where you keep learning and learning and learning. And all of a sudden you discover something that you just had no chance discovered two weeks ago when you were still in your head. So getting started is the most important thing. That's great advice. You're always learning. Always learning. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I even heard that when you were talking about the new company is started on insights you got from your previous. So it all works in that cycle. Nicholas, this is great. Where can our listeners find you and or your business, connect with you, learn more about you? Yeah, I'd love that. I'd love that. Either look me up on LinkedIn, just look for Nicholas Hendrickson or Nicholas Corvana or whatever, you'll find me. Maybe you can put the LinkedIn link in the show notes. Yeah. And or go to our website. The company's called Clutch. The domain is withclutch.com. And if you have a car loan, we'll we'll take a step at refinancing it and, and blowing your payments. Perfect. Thank you, Nicholas. Thanks for having me. 